Last few weeks, we've been in the book of Jonah, and uh, if you haven't been with us, let me try to get you up to speed. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh, and if you grew up in church world, you probably saw a flanograph to that extent, uh, where Jonah was on a ship that uh, was seeking to uh, be destroyed. In fact, God sent a, uh, a storm against this ship, and uh, Jonah, instead of praying to God that the, the storm would end and repenting of his sin, chose to face certain death by being thrown into the sea by the sailors. Uh, as you know the story, he did not die. He was rescued uh, by a unique submersible vessel, a giant fish, a great fish. And he spent three days in the belly of the fish. And uh, we know that uh, uh, that's hard for some of us to believe because we're modern and we are scientists and we are, uh, if I haven't seen it, then I can't believe it. Uh, in fact, this past week, a kid caught the biggest fish ever caught in Colorado. Did you see the picture of him? 14-year-old kid caught a giant carp. Them's good eating, right? I mean, what do you do with a carp that big, you know? <laughs> and so uh, it was a bigger fish than that that Jonah was in. And uh, we know we, we've taken a look at the spiritual lessons, the things that we can learn from Jonah. And part of the problem in chapter one, why he doesn't want to go to Nineveh is because he's really afraid that God will save the Ninevites. And he doesn't want that to happen because the Ninevites are wicked people. And they're people that are mean, and they've been mean to Israel over the years. In fact, uh, they are notorious for bragging about their wicked ways. Some of the things that we know about them is that when they would conquer a people group, when they would come and take your land, your, uh, your place that you lived in, your city, they would rape your women, they would kill your children, they would skin the men alive, they would bury them in the sand, still alive, with no skin on, they would tack your tongue down to the sand, and they would allow you to die of dehydration and uh, lack of uh, uh, fluids as you're bleeding out in the desert sand. Then they would come back and they would cut the head off of their victim and they would pile their skulls in a pyramid as if to say, Assyria has conquered. Nineveh reigns supreme. They were a hideous, evil people and Jonah had seen this firsthand and he didn't want God to save them. And so one of the things that we wrestled through in that first chapter is, are there people that you don't want to see saved? Are there people that you feel shouldn't get a second chance from God? In chapter two, Jonah never repents throughout the entire book. He never repents of his attitude towards the Ninevites. Even in the fish, he thanks God. Hey, thanks for saving me. And I guess I better go because I have no control where this fish is headed. But he never repents. And there's this tension in the book of Jonah that scholars, Bible scholars, have had to try, they've tried to resolve it for, for centuries. And I argued last week that we just need to be okay with the tension. And that part of what we're learning in Jonah chapter 2 especially is that we've got to enter into the mess in the fish. We've got to be willing to go and get slimed. And if we're all honest, there's junk and there's mess and there's tension and there's unresolved things in this life, in this world. And the only way to make sense of some of these things is to enter into them. 
to allow God and his sovereignty, how very little we understand of that, to usher us where he wants us to be. So chapter 3, let me begin by saying uh, the very first July 4th that fell on a Sunday was July 4th, 1779. And they did not celebrate July 4th on July 4th, 1779. They delayed it till July 5th. The culture back then was radically different than it is today, is it not? Uh, They chose to have a day of rest. There was actually one fireworks display. It was in Philadelphia on July 4, 1779. All others in the country were not held. They waited till Monday, July 5th. It's been interesting as I've wrestled through because part of me wrestles with, okay, how patriotic should we be in a church service? Because on the one hand, I love America. I think it's the best country to be a part of in many respects. And yet at the same time, there are many problems in our nation. And so at certain crossroads in American history, I think it's appropriate and right for the church and for pastors to speak prophetically, kind of like Jonah, to the country, to the government, to the nation, to the the leaders that they are finding themselves under. I think it goes without question that many Americans, majority of Americans, according to a recent poll that was done June 25th, 26th, asked the question, so do you think America's headed in the right direction? 64% of Americans said no. 64% of Americans, over a majority of Americans in our nation right now, feel like we're not heading in the right direction. And that is pretty open-ended. You can answer that a myriad of ways. But 64% of Americans with that open-ended question would say, no, we're not going the right way. In fact, uh, one of the freedoms that we have in this nation is if we don't feel it's going the right way, we can tell somebody, North Korea can't do it. Iraq, Iran, you might maybe remember the protests that, that we saw on the internet, maybe even in some news outlets that happened in Iran as they were protesting the, the election And the results of that election. And in our country, we have freedom to protest, to gather. We have freedom to assemble. We have freedom to speak our minds. Today, I think Jonah 3, we couldn't have a better text to look at in light of where America is today. Now, uh, I want you to, 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 to interact with one another for just a moment. I'm giving you permission to talk to your neighbor. And what I want you to do is, if you were to march on Capitol Hill today, and you were to carry a sign, what would your sign say? If you were to march on Capitol Hill today, and you were to carry a sign, what would your sign say? You got 30 seconds. Go. 30 seconds. Start talking. All right, so everybody get their slogans figured out? 
Last week, there was a bike ban that was protested on the Capitol steps, and they had a little, they had a little chant, and I laughed every time I heard it, because uh, they were protesting the bike ban in Black Hawk and Central City, and there was all these people on their bikes, on their bicycles, and uh, they were, I can't remember the saying, but it was so cheesy, <laughs> and they had little signs, and they were all really mad that they couldn't ride their bikes in these towns, <laughs> like America. Home of the free. I mean, you can protest anything in this nation. And I don't know what your slogan would be. I don't know what your, your sign would say. But I do know what Jonas said. <laughs> Picture, if you will, all those stereotypical prophets that you've seen in those cartoons, you know. And they stand there with their sign and they're disheveled and sackcloth and ashes. And it says, repent for the end is near. Pretty close to what Jonas said. In fact, um, I think his words are very appropriate for any nation in our world today. In fact, we're going to wrestle through some of these things. But first, uh, let's take a look at this. Because uh, one of the things that I wrestle with is, as an American, is I love this country. And I do believe that there are, are many wonderful, great things. And, and for the most part in our history scriptures have played a role, whether it was genuine faith in the founding fathers and in those who went before us, or if it was just civil religion, there's no doubt that the Bible has played a role in our nation. And I think most of us would agree that that seems to be not the case as much anymore. Now, God uh, had the fish, if you remember, cough up Jonah, on the beach, and that must have been an interesting uh, experience, to say the least. I don't know if he had a change of clothes, um, but because uh, they probably left his luggage on the ship. Anyways, Jonah, uh, this disheveled, crazy-looking, seaweed-headed, wrapped uh, prophet, makes his way to Nineveh. He's not happy about it. Uh, as we'll learn in the next chapter, but we see that the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Now, I want to pause here real quick because this, I think, is so important. This one little verse, because some of you need to hear today that God comes to us a second time. In fact, I remember growing up in a church where uh, we we had salvation messages every week for the same 150 people that were there. And we had an altar call. For the same 150 people that were there to get right with God. And so every week I went down because I was convinced I was, you know, if that bus hit me, because that was always the illustration. If you step out of the church today and the bus hits you, do you know that you will go to heaven? And it was said very red faced and pounding the pulpit. And I every week I, you know, fourth grader, third grader. Yeah, I'm going to die and I'm going to go to hell. This is going to be really bad. So every week I went down and I received Jesus once again, every single week until I went to a different church and then they didn't have altar calls. And then I really freaked out because <laughs> what am I going to do now? I can't get right with Jesus because there's not the weekly altar call. I went down every week to make my right, my relationship right with Jesus because I was so afraid every re- week. Jesus gave me another chance at that church. And I don't know how big my sins could have been in third and fourth grade, but they were big enough that I had a sense that God wanted to punish me for them. And perhaps you are sitting here today and you've got this sense that God wants to punish me for something I've done. 
Perhaps you're sitting here today and you're wrestling through, yeah, people say God is love, but I just, I struggle with accepting that because some of the things I've done or some of the things that have been done to me, maybe you feel tainted in some way that something happened to you that you had no control of and you feel unworthy for God. But God comes a second time and a third and a fourth and a fifth. Did you know that the average amount of times people have to hear the gospel in our country nowadays? They have to hear the gospel seven times on average before they, be, they respond in faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That makes me a really bad preacher. Because if it takes seven times for a person to hear it, then I have to really, you have to really pray hard that they show up seven times. And not just here, but in your interactions with them over coffee at Supers or the Canyon or, or in your interactions in your home as you have folks who don't know Jesus and you build relationships with them uh, seven times on average. Jonah, it took two, not, not to come to faith in, in Yahweh because he already had faith in Yahweh, but it took him twice for God to say, hey, got your attention now? God came to him a second time. And he says this, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And so, you know, the story, I hope Jonah goes and uh, he obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. So a tad bigger than Ray. In fact, scholars say that it had 120,000 people in it. In fact, God says this in uh, Jonah chapter four. 120,000 people lived in Nineveh. That's a big city. And God is concerned about the people of Nineveh. And Jonah doesn't like that God is concerned about the people of Nineveh because he thinks that they deserve God's wrath, God's judgment. Well, Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming. Now, here's his message. Here's his sign as he walks through Nineveh. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. That's the whole message. In Hebrew, it's five words. Five words in the Hebrew. Now, do you see a couple things missing in this message, perhaps? Now, my guess is, since God told him to tell him what he wanted him to tell him, he told them everything that God told them to tell them. Are you following me on that? So uh, my guess is God's not upset that Jonah left some stuff out. This is the content of God's message for the Ninevites. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, this is fun because that last word, overthrown, in the Hebrew is hapak. And hapak is a fun word. In fact, um... I've got a little picture for us in a moment. Hapak means it has this semantic range. You know, words in English have this semantic domain, like the word trunk. When I use the word trunk, what am I talking about? Well, I could be talking about a trunk that's in grandma's attic. I could be talking about a trunk that's on the end of my car. I could be talking about a trunk that's on an elephant. I could be talking about a trunk that's on a tree. There's a whole lot of trunks. And it's the context that the word's used in that helps us understand how I'm using it. Hey, did you see the trunk on that one? You need a little more context. Did you see the trunk on that BMW as it went by? Oh, okay. I know what he's talking about. 
In Hebrew, in Greek, in all languages, there's a thing called semantic domain, that a semantic range that all words kind of have. And there's overlapping meanings. And so one of the things we have to figure out is how is this word being used? And so hapak means to be overthrown or destroyed. That's one possible meaning. Another possible meaning is to be changed through turning to God. And, and that's, I'm taking a little liberty because I think that's part of what this context says, but it means to be turned. In fact, vast majority of the time when we see this word in the scriptures, uh, in the middle there, that's the word hapach and see the blue at the bottom. 95 times we see this word in the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, and more than half of those it's translated turn or turned or turning. Do you see how few times it's translated overthrown? See that little spot up at the keystone? So in other words, there's a wordplay going on here in this passage. Jonah's message is 40 days and God will overthrow Nineveh. The question is how? Will he overthrow Nineveh by destruction? Or will he overthrow their hearts through repentance. Cool, huh? You got to read this book. It's a lot of fun. There's great stories in this book. And Flanagraph just doesn't do it justice. So there's this meaning. And the, the Ninevites probably aren't aware of this double meaning of this word because they don't speak Hebrew. All they're hearing is, we might be overthrown. Well, this is what they do. The Ninevites believe God. In fact, in the Hebrew, the word believed is the first word of the sentence because you can do this in other languages. English, it matters what order the words are in or it doesn't make any sense. But in Hebrew and Greek, you can emphasize a word based on where it is at in the sentence. And so this word believed is at the beginning of the sentence, thus saying, that's really important. Believed the Ninevites did in God. It's kind of like Yoda speak, right? <laughs> believed. The Ninevites did, you know, <laughs> Yoda talks like a Hebrew, apparently. So the Ninevites believed God. This is how much they believed because uh, belief is more than just mental assent to something, to some facts. Perhaps you've heard the story of the man who uh, walked across Niagara Falls. It was at the... Uh, early uh, part of this century. This, this story has been told many, many, many times. But there's a man who walked across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. And uh, he did it many, many years. And in one year that he went, uh, the Prince of Wales was present in the crowd watching him make his walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. In fact, he had gotten very creative in his way of making his way across Niagara Falls. One time, uh, he was walking and halfway through, he was carrying a table and chairs and he placed the table and chairs precariously balancing them on the tightrope and proceeded to sit down and have lunch on the table and chairs on this tightrope. I have no idea how he did that. And another time he, he wheeled across a wheelbarrow. And the time that this Prince of Wales was there, uh, he was wheeling across the wheelbarrow and he came to the side that the Prince of Wales was on. And he says, does everyone believe that I can walk across this tightrope pushing this wheelbarrow? And everybody's like, ah, oh, yeah, you can do it. We know you can. And he spoke to the Prince of Wales and he says, okay, 
Do you believe that I can walk across this tightrope pushing this wheelbarrow? Prince of Wales, absolutely. I've just seen you do it. He says, all right, will you get in? Well, the Prince of Wales wanted to become the King of England. And so he said, no. You see, he believed in his brain. But his action, his actions didn't follow his belief, or at least what he said mentally. Belief is more than just mentally ascending to something being fact or true. And we see this here with the Ninevites. Not only do they believe this, they do something about it. They declared a fast. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. You know what your potatoes come in, I guess? Anybody want to make a dress of that? It's uncomfortable, scratchy, itchy. And that's the point. I am going to rid myself of creature comforts, of food, of drink, of nice clothes, to demonstrate that I believe what God's saying. That I'm taking this seriously. That I am repenting. When the news reached the king, now this is a grassroots roots movement. <laughs> because it starts out in one part of the city, uh, Jonas, one, a day into the city, and it reaches the king. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. <laughs> I love that. Can you imagine a leader doing that today? The king of Nineveh did. Not only that, he issued a decree, a proclamation in, in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. I don't have a clue how they did that, but that's how serious they are. Anybody been around cattle that haven't been fed for a while? They're loud, aren't they? They're ornery. You know, it's like... Shoot them and eat them. I mean, it is frustrating to be around cattle that haven't been fed in a while. Just imagine all the bleeding and all the crying that's going on in Nineveh because nobody's eating. Because they're repenting. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. He, they even stuck sackcloth on the animals. Maybe that's how they muzzled their mouths. <laughs> stuck their heads in bags of sackcloth. To keep them from eating. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Because that's what Nineveh is known for. That's the problem. That's the root of their wickedness. And then this is a great verse. This is what the king says. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Who knows? But do you see that the decision is totally in God's hands? This king has no concept that if we do this, then God must. God's obligated. Have you ever heard that verse in 1 Chronicles chapter 7 thrown out in Christian prayer meetings for our nation? If my people humble themselves and pray, then I'll do such and such for them. And we like that verse because we think, oh, if we can just get enough people to humble themselves, if we can just get enough people to repent, if we can just get enough people to pray, then God has to do this. Trouble is, that passage was written for Israel, for his covenant people. God had a contract with them. God doesn't have a contract with us. 
We have a declaration of independence. We have a constitution, but we do not have a covenant relationship with God. We don't. There's no document out there. There's no holy writings where God says, I have revealed myself to you in this way and I have entered into this relationship with you. Therefore, I am obligating myself to you in certain ways just as you are obligating yourself to me. And we would much rather think of ourselves that way because now God's not, he can't get off the hook. He's got to come through on certain promises. He's got to protect. He's got to bless. He's got to provide if we meet the conditions of the covenant. That's not us though. But there's still some good news. Keep listening. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Uh, the word relented, Neham, when it's used in relationship to God, I think it's best to, to translate it as God had compassion on them. Maybe that's what your translation says. Maybe you got a King James and it says God repented. Basically what God do, has done is he's like 40 days. I was going to overthrow them. And the way they chose was to be overthrown through turning to God. It's still great upheaval, isn't it? Because things have got to change. There's a text in Jeremiah 18 that I want to take us to. And I think this is a far better text for Americans to talk about when we talk about God blessing America. And when we talk about our need of repentance as a nation. And when we talk about our need to turn back to God, to be overthrown by turning our hearts to God. Jeremiah says this, and God is saying this through the prophet Jeremiah. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed. And if that nation, I warned, repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. Does that sound familiar to Jonah 3? No? Are you? Hello? Everybody asleep? It hasn't been that long, has it? And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. No covenant. Any nation. Anybody. You see, one thing that we can get from Jonah chapter 3 is God wants wicked people to come to know him. That's why he sent Jonah. Twice he sent him. God really, really, really wanted to make himself known to the Ninevites. And he wanted to do that through a prophet named Jonah. And Jonah wanted nothing to do with it. But God still got the job done. It's amazing to me that the extent and the, the lavishness that God will go to reveal himself to wicked people. And this is just a foretaste of, of things to come long after Jonah, of Jesus Christ, the God-man, God's only son, coming to this world. And Romans tells us that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet enemies, while we were yet fighting against God, resisting him, struggling against him, wanting nothing to do with him, while we were dead in our sins, God sent Jesus to us. 
You see, that's why we can't have a list of people that we don't like and are too wicked for God's salvation. Because we were on God's list. But he doesn't have a list. (laughs) We were on his list of wicked, evil, and enemies. But he still acted for our salvation. I don't know where we're at as a nation. I, I won't try to give you a guess. All, all I know is this. There seems to be lots of wickedness in this world. There seems to me to be lots of wickedness in our own nation. It seems perhaps that some of the greatest enemies that our nation is currently facing are not in Iraq and Iran and Afghanistan, but some of the most sinister evils and wickedness we face in our nation are in us. And imagine if the church were to act prophetically to the nation today. Imagine if people were to experience revival and they were to believe the message that the church shares that there is a greater kingdom and it is coming and it is breaking in and you can be part of this greater kingdom. No matter what your past, no matter what you've done, no matter how wicked or evil you might think you've been or even we might think you've been or even God considers you to have been you can have a second chance you can enter into this kingdom and this kingdom will last forever and this kingdom will reign forever because this king will reign forever imagine a church that at the right time speaks prophetically to our nation It feels to me we've reached that time. It feels to me that we've reached that time and place in our culture and in our government and in our media and in our entertainment. You know, this will come with a price. We'll look at that price in Jonah 4 next week. But part of that price might be that we've got to get off of our high and mighty righteous horse. Will Rogers was an American humorist, comedian, cowboy. He died in 1935. One of the things he said is that Americans need to clean up their hearts and get their fingernails dirty. Perhaps that's where the church is at today. The church needs to clean up their hearts through repentance and get their fingernails dirty by going and doing service through VBS, through Second Saturdays, by going and serving this culture so that this culture can see what the counterculture of the kingdom looks like. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Jonah and what this book can teach us and just uh, how amazing 
<laughs> an old ancient document like this feels relevant today. Lord, we do pray for our nation and our leaders. We ask, Father, that if there is need of repentance, that they would humble themselves. We pray, Father, more importantly, that the church would lead by humbling ourselves and repenting. That we would act the way Jonah has acted and extend your message to all peoples. Holy Spirit, make it so. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. May he keep you safe as you watch things explode today. May he overthrow our nation through the turning of our hearts to him. May it begin with me. Amen.